week 11 uh, in, this, in this series through the book of Judges. I will miss this symbol. I will miss this book. I uh, don't know what I'm going to do with myself now. I feel like I've fully invested myself in this the last three months. and uh, almost would love it to finish with a, with a wonderful crescendo and and then like, you come to Judges 19, 20, and 21, and like, oh my goodness. How do we end this well? Um, so la- last week we were in the book of, uh, last week we were in the chapter 17 and 18. And so for those that haven't been following along, uh, Leslie's here and Gareth's here and Sam and Jane, and, and, uh, and some of you have maybe not been following this series, and you arrive for this week. The final week, Judges 19, 20, and 21. And uh, I almost feel like apologizing to you for, for that. Um, I, read, I was reading recently, I read a comment around this particular part of the Bible. And I have to agree, I think it was an Old Testament scholar, and he said that this is without doubt the most horrible story in the Hebrew Bible. And it truly is. It's the most horrible story in the Hebrew Bible. And so we're just going to, we're going to, I want to summarize it a wee bit. I want to try and pull out two or three things from it and then I want to summarize uh, pick out two or three things to wrap this uh, series up this morning last week we talked in in chapters 17 and 18 and we suggested that what was going on what this is what happens to the religious religious life of God's people whenever he he is ignored when his voice is rejected when his commands are disobeyed, 17 and 18 was an insight into what happens to the religious life when God is ignored. This is not, this is not by any means as it should be. But the fear in some ways, the caution is that it's all too easily how it can be. And so as we approach chapters 19, 20 and 21, we're looking not at the religious life, but we're looking at what happens to morality. We're looking at what happens to the moral life of people when God is ignored. Whenever we decide to do whatever is right in our own eyes, this is an insight into what can happen. This is an insight into what did happen. And again, as we, were, as we talked last Sunday, we, we talked about the, particularly the tribe of the, of the Danites. We talked about Micah. And we talked about this Levite. And we're introduced to another Levite this morning. Um, the story revolves around this Levite. The Levite who had lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim. Took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And so we're introduced again this morning to a Levite. The sad thing is, is that the Levites were supposed to be the spiritual leaders of the nation. They were the ones almost to set the spiritual temperature. And here we, have, here we have them abandoning God and his ways, how to worship in 17 and 18, and begin to watch how they've abandoned his, his justice, his righteousness, his ways. Morality spirals all pretty much out of control. But the Levites are supposed to be spiritual leaders. And just to point out this, the, the, the characters, they're, they're all unnamed. As, as, uh, as we look through these three chapters, we are introduced to the Levite, we're introduced to his concubine, we're introduced to the father-in-law, 
and uh, and all along there's no there's no names mentioned. Eliezer, uh, Aaron's grandson, is mentioned, sort of in brackets, but in the but mainly in the story in the story that's being told, the characters are unnamed. And I just want to point that out because I think it's I think it's just uh, I just think it's worth saying that I think this is not. Um, it's, it's a representation of, of, of everyone. It's a representation of what, what is going on. It's a representation of, of everyone, not just one particular story. I think they're unnamed because this is representing them all. And so at the start of uh, Judges chapter 19, it says, In those days Israel had no king. And at the end, our last verse in Judges chapter 21, verse 25 it says, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. Maybe some of your versions, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so that's what bookends this story. In those days, there was no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They're the two bookends of this, of this story. But let me try and summarize this. Um, this story, these three chapters, this Levite had a concubine, and for me that raises that raises issues in itself. It's God's heart, God's heart was for one man and one woman, and, and you'll, if you're familiar at all with with the Bible, even the very best, the heroes of the faith ended up with many wives, ended up with many concubines. I just want to acknowledge that just that was not right. It never should have been that way. We should read that this Levi took a concubine, and even that should should horrify us. But this concubine, she became unfaithful, and so she returned back home to her dad. She returned back home to her, her family home, and, uh, and it was four months. It was four months before the Levite was bothered. It was four months before he decided, uh, I'm going to make my way back to my father-in-law's house, to get my wife to get this to get the concubine in my opinion he's going to get his property back he wants his property back and so he makes his way after four months he decides actually I'm going to go back and get her bring her back home I think it's worth pointing out too the whole way through the 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 this our Bibles the whole way through the, the Old Testament um, right from the beginning right from Genesis hospitality is the code of hospitality is so important to the people, to God's people. So important in, in just in the culture of the day. It's just ingrained. Hospitality is ingrained in in the people. And so the father-in-law, when he sees the when he sees the Levite come and he, he welcomes him in, he's so glad to see him. Refresh yourself. Have something to eat. Stay the night. And this pattern continues for a few verses. And he he wants him to stay. She stay. It's it's afternoon. There's no point in heading out now. Come on, stay another night. And it happens until the fourth or fifth day, and the Levite's that frustrated. He can't stay anymore. He's not going to stay another minute. And uh, and later on, later on in the day, he makes the he makes the wrong choice and makes his way from his father-in-law's house. Gets his servant. Gets their their donkeys. Gets his concubine. And he leaves. He leaves in the evening and it proves to be an uh, unwise decision. So as, the, as, the, as this story develops, the, the servant suggested that they stay in, uh, in Jebus, J-B-U-S, stay among the Jebusites. 
But the Levite doesn't want to stay there. He doesn't want to stay among people that aren't his own. He wants to get to Gibeah. And so they get to the city square, and they expect someone to show them hospitality. It was the expectation. It was the expectation, especially among people that were their own, that they, that they, would, that they would be received. They would be welcomed into a house, welcomed into a home. But no one came. No one welcomed them in. In the night, it was getting darker. It was getting further into the night. And eventually, an old man who wasn't from Gibeah, he was from Ephraim, he comes and he says, come, come to my house. Come and stay with me. And with this ominous warning, make sure you don't stay. Whatever you do, don't stay in the city square. And we soon find out why uh, he gave them this warning, why they should not stay in the city square. And then we're, we're told a story that mirrors, that painfully mirrors a story that we read in Genesis 19. The story here is that there are men from Gibeah, a man from the city came pounding at the door, looking the men sent out. They weren't looking to do some un, some not very nice things to these men. And they wouldn't let him in. Hospitality was so important to this man. Don't do this. Don't do this disgraceful act. And he pushes it further. He says, I'll send my daughter out. Horrible, horrible part of the story. I'll send my daughter out. They don't want that. And so eventually the Levite sends his concubine. He forces his concubine out. And, uh, and it burrs. It doesn't burr thinking about what took place that night. And the next morning, I struggle, I struggle to think that the Levite never went out looking. He never left. He, he must just have slept the night through. And the next morning woke up and found his concubine at the threshold of the door. And he steps out over her, tells her he gets up. There's no response, and he realizes that she's dead. And he throws her under the donkey, takes her home, and divides her body into 12 and sends it to the 12 tribes of Israel. Most horrible story in the Hebrew Bible, or what? And the story goes on. No, at the end of chapter 19, it's no surprise that the people respond to, the, to this, to what the Levite has done by saying, we've never seen anything like this. Nothing has ever happened like this before. It's never been as bad as this. And in chapter 20, we're told, it almost, it almost feels like it's an encouraging word. If you were just to open up chapter 20 of Judges, you'd think, wow, this is encouraging. All of Israel is to gather together as one man. And that's what we're told in chapter 20. They respond, to, they respond to what has happened. They respond to what has been sent around the 12 tribes. And they gather as one man because they want an explanation. And the Levite gives them an explanation. But let me, let me tell you, it's a heavily, heavily edited version of what actually took place. Now, if you read in the, fir- in the f- verses 4, 5, and 6 of that, you'll find how heavily edited his version of what happened in Gibeah was and the story goes on and they decide that they're going to they're going to take vengeance on the Benjamites and this tribe God's people and so they inquire of God and as we talked about last week they inquire of Elohim they inquire of 
the generic name for God. They've, they've so far removed themselves from covenant. They're no longer referring to him through his covenant name, through his name that he has revealed himself to his people. And then two, twice, Benjamin defeats the rest of the Israelites that have come to, to fight. They come once and the Benjamites defeat them. They come again and the Benjamites defeat them. The third time, the Israelite attacks Benjamin and the, the Israel gains victory over them. 600 Benjamites are left and they flee, they flee and hide among, hide among the caves in the desert. We get to chapter 21 and uh, we realize something in the, in the same way that Jephthah did in Judges chapter 11. They'd made, a, they'd made rash vows. They made oaths in the, in the hate of crisis. I don't know if you ever do that. In the heat of the moment, you make a promise. You make an oath that you're never going to do that again. That they will never do that again. In the heat of crisis and the passion for revenge, they make these promises, they make these oaths, they make these vows. But it's crazy when we, we begin to read on in this last chapter and, and they've ignored God. They've made this a pattern of ignoring God, ignoring his voice, ignoring his ways, not even coming to inquire of him anymore. And then they manage still somehow to blame him. It's his fault. In verse 2, it says the people went to Bethel and there they sat before God until evening, saying, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened? Why has this happened? Why should one tribe be missing from Israel today? making their complaint before God. What has happened? Why is one tribe missing? It's almost like they're completely ignorant to the fact of what they've just done. And then it just feels that they're making it up as they go along. Chapter 21, it just feels like they're making it up. They've realized that in, their, in the heat of the moment, they've, they've almost wiped out a whole tribe. 600 have been left. And so to make up to make up for that, look how this just spirals out of control. To make up for that, then they wipe out a people group. They wipe out Jabesh Gilead so that they can get wives for the Benjamite tribe so that there's not one tribe lost in the nation. But whenever they've taken the men, they've wiped out the city. There's only 400 wives for the 600 men that are left. The maths doesn't work. And they're still making it up as they go along. What are we going to do? How are we going to make up the other 200? And as they continue to make it up as they go along, they realize, they remember that there's a, there's a party. There's a festival. There's a dance in Shiloh. Let's send, our, let's send the, the remaining 200. Hide among the bushes. And whenever you see the young virgins coming out to dance, go and grab 200 of them. Go and abduct them. Drag them away. And they can become your wives and we don't have to there will not be a tribe missing in the nation and, it, and all of that then we find out that, that all of that takes place and then they're dismissed everyone just goes back to their home as normal verse 24 at that time the Israelites they left that place and they went home to their tribes and clans each to his own inheritance 
And Israel, in those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. And so how crazy it is that the Benjamites were being wiped out. They're being wiped out because of their, how they treated this young woman. But as it spirals out of control, the same people, the same people that were destroyed were now being encouraged to go and abduct and drag away 200 young women. And in fact, the people that were so offended and so upset and sent people out to fight and, and wipe out the Benjamites are the same people that are now saying, go and do that, don't worry, we will make a defense for you whenever these young virgins' fathers come asking what's going on. So welcome to the last series, last talk in the series of Judges. There's two or three things I want to point out, and then we'll wrap this up. I'm aware that it's, it's horrible, and it's messy, and it's uncomfortable. And there's part of me all week that has just wanted to dismiss it, has wanted to ignore it. And I just, part of me, God, I don't think that's, I don't think that's you. But I, but I felt like you have to, you can't ignore it. Too, too often we try to ignore the mess. Too often we try to ignore the bits that are uncomfortable, that make us uneasy. And uh, we shouldn't do that. We want to be real, we want to be as filled with as much integrity as possible and take what it, what it says and try to wrestle through it try to engage with it, try to work out what's going on. I've loved, over the last couple of years, I made, made this commitment to the Lord two, two or three years ago that, um, that my time spent with him would be done without commentaries, would be done without a book telling me what it all meant. And a couple of years ago, just Holy Spirit, what it, whatever it is you want to reveal, um, I'm, I'm just making myself available for you to teach. I want you to be my greatest influence. I want you to be my greatest teacher. And one of the, th- one of the beautiful things that I've found has been that the whole way through the Bible, even though this is not the way it should be, it's an ongoing revelation. God is, is, on, is it's, it's an ongoing story of how he's revealing himself to his people. And the Bible is the understanding of where, where, where God's people are at. And so they haven't fully, they haven't fully got it. There's parts of Judges, there's parts of Samuel and Kings where they get a wee bit more. There's a wee bit more understanding. There's just this ongoing revelation of who he wants to reveal himself uh, to be. And so we've seen with the Danites last week that they, they were confined to the hill country. This was the promise. This is your inheritance. Go and take it. But the, the Danites, they didn't trust, they didn't obey. And they ended up being confined to the hill country. But actually, we, we read that, the, that the, the Levite and his concubine and the servant, they were unwilling to stay in, in, in Jebus. They were unwilling to stay among the Jebusites. And it's unfortunate because if you go back to Judges chapter 1, verse 21, you'll see that the Benjamites had failed to dislodge the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. And to this day, the Jebusites live there with the Benjamites. And so this was, a, this was a problem. 
This was another one of those moments where they had, they had failed to dislodge. They had taken hold of it. They had, they, they had stepped into inheritance. They had taken hold of the city, but they hadn't, they hadn't got rid of its inhabitants. They hadn't got rid of the thing that was distracting, that was, that was hindering God's promise being fulfilled. And as I, and as I was wrestling through that this, this week, I found myself uh, realizing that there is moments where we hold back. There is moments that we do enter into promise. There is moments that we do trust, that we do obey, that we, that we take hold of what he wants to teach, of what he wants to reveal to us. But there's something that still, we still manage to hold back. There's still something that we take hold of. Maybe not the best example, but, but for, for people that have, have struggled with alcohol, finally you've taken control of it. Finally you've taken hold of it. For two months you haven't touched a drink, but you haven't yet been willing to empty the cupboards. You haven't yet been willing to empty all that's still in the cupboards out into the sink. You've, you've held back a wee bit just in case. And that doesn't have to be just with alcohol. That can be in anything. I know for me, just in general, there's, there's, this, there's this thing. We come to saying, I, I surrender all. Lord, I give you my heart. Jesus, you're my all in all. There's times where I sing it, I'm knowing that, knowing that, he's, that he's trustworthy, knowing that, he, that he's so filled with affection for me that I can say that and I can live that. And there's part of me that does, there's parts of me gives of myself, but it all, there's the, that, the temptation which I, all, which I often give into is to hold something back. And so whether that's, just a, whether that's material stuff, when it comes to giving, whether that's just an emotional stuff when it comes to trying to love people really well that are difficult to love. Whatever it is, there's just still something in us that, that, that holds back. We've taken it. We've stepped into it, but we, there's still something of it that is unwilling to get rid of the inhabitants, the things that still distract, the things that still can cause us to be taken off off track and as I as you watch the story being played out in these remaining chapters I've been thinking this a lot this week if the if the Benjamites if they had used the same passion in fighting amongst their own amongst their fellow Israelites if they had used the same amount of passion in their fighting with their own as they did with the Canaanite people as they did with these Jebusites, I don't think then this account would ever be here. I don't think it would have got as bad as this. I don't think the spiral would have descended as far if they had used as much passion in fighting the Canaanite people as they did ultimately in fighting their own. And I, and I, I hope you know by now I love the church. I'm passionate about every expression of church. And one of the biggest, one of my biggest pains, I, I, I think you could ask Judith this, one of my biggest struggles, one of the things that grieves me, that, that like wrecks me more than anything, is the debates and the fights and the quarrels amongst our own over secondary issues. If we put the same amount of passion into the debates to prove our own points, to stand on our on our own preference, our own denominational preference, if we put as much passion into that as we did among trying to take, win the world for Jesus, 
get rid of the idols and the distractions that are turning people away from God, if we put as much passion into that as we do into fighting our own corner, into taking our own stand over things that are not important. I'm passionate about it. And, I, and I'm, I'm reading through Luke, I'm reading through the, the Gospel of Luke at the minute. And in Luke chapter 9, I just read this yesterday, and, and, uh, and I, I'm just convinced it would grieve Jesus. I, I'm convinced of, that we are still waiting to be that unanswered. I, I what it would be like to be, the, to be the, an answer to the prayer that Jesus prayed to the Father. And in John 17, Jesus, that's the prayer that Jesus prays to the Father, that we would be one, that they would be one, that they would know this unity amongst each other that we have. Father, this unity that we have, you, me, and Holy Spirit, this wonderful relational unity that we have, I'm longing that that would be their experience. I'm praying that that would be their experience. And so as we, get, as we look into the gospel of, the gospel of Luke, uh, John sees, sees a man that's not part of his, their tribe. He's not part of their denomination or whatever you want to call it. He's not part of them. And so he sees him casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And he comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, what are you going to do about this? He's not part, he's not part of us. He's not in, this, in the same team. He's not part of the same expression of, of faith. And Jesus says, don't stop him. Don't get involved in that debate. Don't get involved in that quarrel. Don't take on that fight. If he's not against you, he's for you. And he goes on. The, the story goes on, and they still haven't caught it. And they're still wanting to call down fire from heaven to destroy, and Jesus, says, Jesus turns and rebukes them. Says, Don't be like that. Don't behave like that. Let's just go to the next. Let's just go to the next village. See, I'm long in that. There's things where there's primary things that are worth fighting about. Found in our in our creeds that he came born of a virgin. He lived among us, took on flesh, dwelt among us. He died. He was buried and he rose again. He's ascended on high. He sits at the Father's right hand. He still speaks. He's still calling his people. And one day we're going to be with him. We'll fight about that. But the secondary things, and the passion that we give to, to our, our futile debates, it pains me. It grieves me. And I love, we're coming to a time, some stuff that we want to see happening in the new year. We just want to pour our passions into seeing people one for Jesus rather than pouring our passions in trying to convince you that my understanding of this passage is different than yours and spending now to eternity trying to fight that and work that out winds me up see this is that what's what what's happened here to move on about because we're going to get into a rant forgive me but but what happened this was a personal crisis in somebody's home what started out in uh, Judges 19 was a, was a personal issue. It was a personal crisis. But then it escalates into citywide. Then it escalates into the tribe. And then it escalates ultimately to the entire nation. See, it doesn't just, 
These things just don't happen in a day. This descending, this spiral descending of disobedience, of turning away from God, it never starts in a day. That's why when we looked at the story of Gideon and and others that we want to challenge our personal agenda. We want to challenge our selfish ambition. In chapter 20, as I've already mentioned, their assembly is one man. It looks different than the last time they assembled as one man. At the end of Joshua, under the, on, at the end of Joshua, chapter 24, under the leadership of Joshua, was the last time that we've seen them all gathered together as one man. They were gathered together because they were about to step into inheritance. And Joshua has them all together. He's coming to the end of his life. And he's them all gathered and he divides out the inheritance and then he's like, go, take it. Trust him, obey him. Watch how he's worked for you. Watch how, know how he's been with you. And go and step into all that he has for you. That was the last time they were gathered together as one man. It looks a whole lot different now. They're gathered together as one man about to take out one of their own tribes. It was just this, again, just thinking through what what it looks like, what the fullness of this, what it is to be gathered as one man looks like. And I feel like I've mentioned John's Friday mornings a lot over the last weeks. Um, but I called in at the last wee bit of it, so I didn't hear it all. But I heard enough of it to be encouraged. Talking about the body of Christ being, being one. And that's what we are. We're, we're, we're one body. It's going to be last day. We're going to be assembled together as one. We're going to be assembled as, as the bride. And displaying that unity, displaying that assembly of one man. John mentioned it in John 13. That it's going to reveal Jesus. When we display that one body, when we display that sense of unity, when we display that sense of being assembled together as one, uh, it reveals, it's that that, display, that reveals Jesus to, to people that don't know him. Love one another. It's in loving one another that it's going to reveal that you're, that you're my disciples. It's going to reveal that, I, that he, Jesus is who he said he was. That what he prayed and what he longed to see fulfilled through his life and through his ministry would be as people loving each other really well, displaying Jesus to a people who don't know him. And the psalmist will tell us, Psalm 133, that the Father cannot help but bless that. He cannot help himself. When brothers and sisters dwell together in unity, he commands a blessing. He can't help himself. He's almost, he's, he himself has almost bound himself. He has bound himself to bless when we dwell together in unity, when we come as one man, when we assemble together as one. See, I think what this story has revealed to me is that whenever people do whatever they want, there's, there's, there's personal issues. There's things that will happen to us personally whenever we just begin to do our own thing. There's consequences to that personally. But there's consequences for our community. Whenever people begin to do whatever they want, when everyone does whatever they see fit, whatever is right in their own eyes, the sense of community quickly disintegrates. And so I think that's, that's, that's the thread that begins to come through these remaining five or six chapters in Judges. Everyone began, there was no king, and everybody just did what they saw fit. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Samson, all these guys, they just, 
whatever was seemed good to them, they just took it. They just did whatever they wanted. Whenever we do that, the sense of community quickly disintegrates. Hospitality, as we've seen, is abandoned. The practice of forgiveness is, is abandoned. And I, want to, and I want to say this. Uh, we don't, we don't, we don't, I don't have enough time. But I really, felt, I really felt the burden of that last night as I was, as I was finishing off just these, these thoughts this morning. That the root of bitterness, to avoid bitterness, we need to practice forgiveness. And so these, these guys, they had, they had forgiveness is not, doesn't seem to be even on the radar. And maybe it's going off on a tangent slightly. But to avoid bitterness, to avoid this, this division among the body, to avoid this division amongst each other, to avoid this division amongst the community, to avoid bitterness, we need to practice forgiveness. And so I don't know whether it was such a burden for me this, this last night, whether it, was just, uh, whether it was just something to point out, or whether there's someone in the room that that is a real, that is a real issue for. Forgiveness is a real issue for you. And the longer you hold on to that unforgiveness, you cannot help. You will not be able to avoid bitterness. You will not be able to avoid resentment setting in if you don't get to that place of practicing forgiveness. And I don't want to be insensitive, and I know there's a lot more to say about around that, but I, want to, but I want to just fire it out. If there's anybody struggling with unforgiveness, please let us come and talk to somebody, anybody. Let somebody, anybody pray for you to avoid bitterness, to avoid division. We need to practice forgiveness. Let me finish. Let me wrap this up and land this in a few minutes. At the end of that, at the end of Judges 21, uh, in those days, Israel had no king. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Nothing was right in Yahweh's eyes. If we get to this, if we come to the conclusion of this, if we come to this point in history, I, I find myself asking, what, what, is the, my, what is my response supposed to be to this? How am I supposed to respond to this? And I just felt, just felt gently the Holy Spirit saying, mourn, <laughs> grieve. Grieve this. These are our spiritual ancestors. This is something to be mourned and grieved over. But thankfully, we're we're at the other side of we're at the other side of the story. At this point in history, we grieve and we mourn over the state that our spiritual ancestors had got to. But thankfully, our the story doesn't end there. Thankfully, we're coming to a season where 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 Jesus came, took on flesh, and came and dwelt among us. Began. The process continued the process of making all things right but even though that nothing is right in Yahweh's eyes he refuses to give up on them and there's a part of me almost almost struggled to put that down in paper because it just seems too scandalous I, f- I found myself being so uh, and I know it's been it's been the same the whole way through his grace has been relentless his mercy has been unfailing as I found myself trying to work my way through these few chapters and starting to write some stuff down, for the first time I found myself struggling to write, yet Yahweh, yet Father doesn't give up on them. 
because I witnessed all that they'd done. They got so consumed with how far that they'd fallen. By the consequences of such disobedience, by the consequences of lacking the, the lack of trust. Eventually, I got it down on paper. I kept reading it until I believed it. And I believe it in spite of the horrific mess, in spite of this being, in my opinion, the most horrible story in the Hebrew Bible. He doesn't give up on them. He won't abandon. He won't let them go. And so I know I've used the language relentless grace, but it got to the stage last night where it was just, oh my, it's reckless. It's reckless. There's no rhyme or reason to this. It's reckless grace. Recklessly passionate about his people. Incredibly committed to his people. He will not abandon. And I love how Paul, how Paul reminds Timothy. Paul says to Timothy in... in Second Timothy chapter 2, when we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot, he cannot disown himself. When we are faithless, he remains faithful. He can't, he can't help it. He can't, he won't disown himself. As soon as I got to the end of, the, of Judges 21, I read the first few verses of chapter 21 and, and we, can off, we can sometimes do the same. We personally, we look for somebody else to blame. We collectively as church, we look for someone else to blame. How we've ended up here. We look for somebody to blame how, personally. This, how we, I have ended up here is because of them or because of that. And we look for, we look everywhere else to blame but ourselves. And I just felt as I was bringing this to a close last night in my thoughts and lay back almost like breathe a sigh of relief. I realized that uh, I think that's what, that's what this series has done for me. That's what Judges has done. We, we can look everywhere to blame why we're not fully obeying, why we're not fully trusting. And we forget to look at ourselves, but I think Judges has forced us. It has me. Judges has forced me to look at myself. Judges has forced me to hold up, almost like I've held up a mirror to myself. Judges has forced me to do that. And so I've been forced to deal with idols. I've been, I've been, I've been, in saying so, so forced, I, I think this would be a strong invitation. Strong invitation. What is it? What are you worshipping? have to deal with these idols. What is it that you're worshipping? As I've held up judges, that's what I felt like I've, I've been asking. What is it that you're worshipping? What is it that controls you? What is it that, you've, that, you, that you give yourself to? The consequences of it you will eventually face. As I've held up this book of judges, I, I found what, what, is, what am I going to say yes to? There's times where these guys said yes to some things and and no to others, and they ended up coexisting. The worship of God and the worship of idols ended up coexisting. I find myself, what, am I, what is it that I'm going to say yes to? I don't want to see the results of disobedience spiral out of control in my own life. I don't want to only trust him for part of what he wants to give. I want to trust him for it all. I don't want 
want to believe that he's a God that lacks, that he withholds. He's one that wants to give. He's inviting us in to trust. And he's recklessly committed to you. As I hold up the book of Judges, as I look at it and hold the mirror of Judges before me, he is recklessly, recklessly committed to me. Recklessly committed to you. And he's always pointing us towards Jesus. Again, as I read the Gospel of Luke this week, in Luke is it 9 or 10, the story of the transfiguration. And everything else fades away. Moses and Elijah, representing the law and the prophets. Everything else fades away. And as, and as Peter, James, and John look, it's just Jesus. Everything else has faded away. And just Jesus. And they hear the voice of the Father saying, listen to him. Listen to Jesus. Listen to my son. And so I finish by saying we, we come to the end pointing ourselves towards Jesus, looking towards Jesus. We have, the full, we have the full Bible here. We're not stuck any longer in the pain and the mourning of Judges 21. We look to Jesus. And we look to the one who was the greatest judge. Because the kings came, the king, kings, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, Chronicles, follow after this. And there were still kings that led people, turned people away from God. That's what happened. But we look to one. We come before the greatest judge. We come before the one who is king of kings. And in Psalm 96 verse 11 it says, Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound in all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy. They will sing before the Lord for he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his truth. And so as we come to the end of this series, we point to the greatest judge. We point to the one where everything is made right. We point to the one where everything flourishes under his rule. And here we have the judge that say, that, the, that everything is glad, the seas resound, the fields are jubilant, everything is made right under his rule under the rule of the greatest judge, under the rule of the king of kings. And we look to him. His kingdom is at hand. His kingdom is near. His kingdom comes close. It is coming. His kingdom rule is coming. We continue to see it come, and we long to see it come more. And so we're done. We bless, bless your word, Father. Thank you for it. And we take the hint as the kids come in that time is up. We love you. Bless you in Jesus' name.